as we practice meditation, we begin to see our experience more directly. And we've been talking a lot about this in the instructions, encouraging you to meet the elemental nature of our physical experience, just meet the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral quality of the experience, just meeting the emotions, the thoughts, just as they arise, without getting caught by the content of those experiences. So the meditation instructions encourage us to drop below the realm of concepts to meet our experience more directly. And so we begin this exploration and we start to get familiar with this more direct experience. And that's part of the meditation instructions that we suggest. Learn how to meet this experience more directly. In getting familiar with our experience, we get familiar with what we might call the specific characteristics of our experience. Get familiar with the pressure, the vibration, the tingling. We get familiar with all of the sensations. The other part of the meditation instruction, or another aspect of the meditation instruction that we offer, is to not only pay attention to that level level of experience, what is happening in that sense realm, but also we encourage you to start noticing what happens to it when you pay attention to it. So this part of the instruction begins to point us not to the specific characteristics, the kind of wide variety of characteristics of experience, but the more common characteristics of experience. By noticing how our experience changes, we begin to recognize that all of our experience is impermanent. And as Joseph talked about last week, not only is it impermanent, all of our experience is also unreliable as a place for lasting happiness. So some of you may recognize these two, these anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, unreliability as being two of what are called the three 
general characteristics of all experience. The third being not self, anatta. So tonight I'd like to talk about these three as characteristics, kind of talk about them in terms of each other, how they interrelate. But primarily I'd like to talk about this third one, the characteristic of not-self, and also a little bit about how we might begin exploring this directly in our experience. Directly connecting with these three fundamental characteristics of experience, directly realizing not just the idea of impermanence, but the direct recognition of seeing things change directly in our experience. Directly seeing the unreliability, how because it's impermanent, it is unreliable. And directly seeing the insubstantiality, that's another another way to express this not-self nature insubstantiality, the transient flux of experience. These have a deep impact on our minds when we directly experience these. These three characteristics, seeing these three characteristics, actually perceiving them in our experience, is insight. This is what gives insight meditation its name, the seeing into these three characteristics. There are different kinds of insights, and I think somebody referred to this not too long ago, that sometimes we can, in meeting our experience, come to some understandings about how our psychology came to be, some of the patterns and habits that we are very familiar with, how how those came to be for us. And, And those kinds of realizations, I would call those psychological insights, and they are very powerful also. In my own experience, that kind of recognition, the kind of recognition of seeing that my own patterns are just impermanent causes, impermanent and subject to causes and conditions, just created by causes and conditions. And seeing kind of how they, how they formed the, the, the patterns from history that put them together. That kind of recognition has allowed me to more easily meet those patterns. There's not so much fear, so much identification. There's not so much investment in those patterns. So they can be just simply met with mindfulness. The insights into these three characteristics 
These are the insights that really liberate us. They not only teach us something about how our psychology is put together, but they, they deeply change our mind stream. The insight into impermanence. When the mind deeply understands that things are impermanent, it won't bother to pick things up. It won't bother to cling to them. When it deeply understands the unreliability of our experience, it knows, the mind knows that clinging will lead to suffering. And when the mind deeply recognizes that there isn't anyone here to defend or protect, no, no self to defend or protect, there's no need for reactivity. In the Buddha's second discourse, called the Anatta Lakana Sutta, which the words mean Anatta, not self, Lakana characteristic. So the discourse on the characteristic of not self. In this discourse, the Buddha described these three characteristics in terms of each other. So I'd like to to go over this discourse with you a little bit. The discourse is primarily aimed at helping us to understand this not-self characteristic. And the first way the Buddha goes about pointing to this for us is to point to the aspect of control. And often as we consider or relate to a sense of what we think of as self, there's often an aspect of having some kind of control around it. The one who chooses, the one who decides, that that's often a place where we feel like our self is. That there is someone who chooses. There is someone who decides. Someone who seems to have some sort of control over this being. And that is what self is. And so the Buddha begins the discourse by speaking to that. He says, and he, he does this, he does this um, exploration through this framework of the aggregates that Joseph talked about last week also, that essentially looking at our experience through this framework of the aggregates, we see as we begin to look through this framework, there's, there's nothing in our experience that lies outside of this framework. Everything that we experience falls into one of these five categories. Sometimes this, um, or this term for aggregate 
Aggregate sounds like a complicated technical term, but this term for aggregate, the poly term is conda, and it just simply means something like heap or bundle. It's just, it's, it's a very non-technical word in the poly. And so these five heaps of things, heaps of stuff, as Guy Armstrong sometimes says, five heaps of stuff, describe all aspects of our experience. And nothing falls outside of those. When we look at our experience, everything that we experience falls into one of those five categories. And so he uses this framework as a way to help us kind of deconstruct this idea of self. So he says, form is non-self. And in this translation, Bhikkhu Bodhi is translating anatta as non-self. Form is non-self. For if form were self, this form would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to determine of form let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. But because form is non-self, form leads to affliction, and it is not possible to determine a form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. So this is referring to our body, right? I mean, so he's saying body is not self because we can't say body be thus. We can't say body don't age, body don't have that pain. He says that's evidence, essentially, for the not-self nature of body. So we might think, okay, well, body isn't self, but surely there's something else in there that qualifies as self. So he goes on, feeling is not self, perception is not self. Volitional formations are non-self. And the last, consciousness is non-self. For if consciousness were self, this consciousness would not lead to affliction and it would be possible to determine consciousness. Let my consciousness be thus. Let my consciousness not be thus. But because consciousness is non-self, consciousness leads to affliction, and it is not possible to determine consciousness. Let my consciousness be thus. Let my consciousness not be thus. So how many of us would, if we could, say, let my consciousness be calm, peaceful, at ease. We can't do that. So the Buddha points to this as undermining this belief, essentially, that we have around this aspect of control, being who I am. And he goes on to talk about the other two characteristics and actually points to them, saying everything in our experience is impermanent. Form is impermanent. Feelings are impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. Because these are impermanent, they are unreliable. And his, the question he poses then to the monks that he's talking to, to the practitioners he's talking to, is, is something that is impermanent and unreliable worthy to call self? 
is it something that makes sense to call self? Something that is impermanent and unreliable. Now this comes back again to this question of what do we call self? And I think as we think about it, as we reflect on it, there is often a sense that something that we call self has a sense of, of stability, a sense of some kind of permanence. In the time of the Buddha, one of the ways or one of the kinds of self they were looking for was kind of a transcendent self that was permanent and blissful. And this teaching was directly pointing to that sense of self as being something that can be found. We can certainly, through meditation, attain states that are blissful, but they are impermanent. They come, they go. They are, they are brought together based on causes and conditions. They fall apart based on causes and conditions. So in this part of the sutta, the Buddha is really encouraging us to look at what we call self, and to explore, does it make sense? Does what we call self, because there is something that we call self, but does what we call self actually stand up to investigation? And does it stand up to what we think of it as being when we investigate it? So I'll come back to that in a little while. It can sometimes help to, in exploring this concept of not-self, to think of it in terms of some analogies to help us kind of understand what is being said. What I, one thing I said earlier is that the another way to think of this idea of not-self is to recognize that what we think of as self isn't a thing, it's rather a flux, it's a flow, it's an ever-changing stream of experience. And we impute, essentially impute a concept to that ever-changing flow of experience, and that concept is what we are identifying as self. But we don't see it as a concept. We don't see it as a process in the mind that is creating this concept. We see it as a thing. So one analogy that, um, I'll give you a couple of analogies. One analogy is the analogy of a river. I like this analogy. It's fairly apt because our experience when we meet it with mindfulness feels kind of like a flow, a stream, a river of experience. So what is a river? The water in the river is continually changing. And we can't take a bucket of water out of the river and say, that's the river. 
We can't even point to the, the flow of water in the river and say, that's the river, because that water is never the same water. It's always different water. Instant by instant, it's different water. Perhaps the riverbed. Maybe the riverbed might be the river. Well, the riverbed without the water doesn't seem like much of a river. And even the riverbed changes after a flood. The actual course of that riverbed can change depending on causes and conditions. The river's name doesn't seem to be the river. And yet there is something that we understand to be river. We can give a river a name and we can talk about it. And actually I think that process of giving something a name so that we can talk about it is part of what cements this idea of thing in our minds. The process of perception, misunderstood essentially, creates this idea that there's something there as opposed to it being a convenient shortcut. And so the sense of self, the sense of flow, there is something that makes up what we would call a river, just as there is something that makes up what we would call us, what we would call me or myself. There's something going on here. A process is happening. A process that is related moment to moment by a chain of cause and effect. And yet the thing that we think of as self doesn't exist in the way that we think of it. It's not that there's nothing there. It's not that there's, that, that there's nothing that exists but it doesn't exist in the way that we think of it existing. And there's a sutta that talks about this. This is one of my favorite suttas. This world, for the most part, depends upon a duality upon the idea of existence and the idea of non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, and the Buddha elsewhere refers to the world as being this fathom-long body. In this fathom-long body lies the world. So he's talking about the world of experience here. So for one who sees the origin of the world, the one who sees the arising of experience as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no idea of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, that is for one who sees things passing away out of experience, experience ending, with correct wisdom, there is no idea of existence in regard to the world. So when one sees that experiences are constantly arising, there's no idea that things don't exist. And when one sees that things are constantly ending, there's no idea that things do exist. So the Buddha goes on to say, 
that rather than existence or non-existence, there's a process of things coming into being and falling apart. And that this process is a causally arisen process. Things arise dependent on causes and conditions. Experience arises in dependence on causes and conditions, I should really say. So what we experience as self comes into being through a process of conditions coming together. And we fundamentally misunderstand it to be something, to be a thing. Another analogy that points to this conditions coming together to create something, to create an experience, is the analogy of a rainbow. So a rainbow seems like a thing. You can, you can see the rainbow. There's some kind of existence within the rainbow. It's clear. We can, we can see it. We can talk about it. And yet with the rainbow... Conditions have to come together just right in order for that rainbow to be seen. There needs to be water in the sky. There needs to be sun at, a, at an angle through which the, uh, the, it can pass through the water and meet an observer. So these three things have to be all in relation to each other. The observer the water, the sun, all have to be in the correct position with respect to each other. If one of those three is in some other place, if the observer is a few miles on further, they may not see the rainbow because the orientation is incorrect. So does the rainbow exist or does the rainbow not exist? We can't really talk about it that way. It comes together based on conditions. So when I talk about this teaching of not-self as being a pointer to the flux of experience, sometimes the question comes up about, well, what's the difference then between impermanence and not self. Isn't flux just another term for impermanence? So I'd like to just explore this a little bit. In my own experience, there's a kind of a difference, or I have seen a difference in how the recognitions of impermanence and not self are felt. So with impermanence, it can feel like you're watching something come into being and you're watching something go out of being. It's kind of startling. I remember on one retreat, I was in Burma, and there was a, it was a room that had some large posts in the room. And um, people were doing walking meditation in the room, and some people were sitting, and... At one point, there were you know, a few people in the room, and I was sitting, and they were doing walking meditation. And I opened my eyes, and I saw this person move 
do the, do the movement, and they, they moved behind a post so that I could no longer see them. And they vanished. In my mind, they vanished. That person just was not there. It's kind of startling. It's like there was this thing. There was a person there. There was an object, something. It was a thing there. It was a person that was there. And then that person was not there. That person disappeared. So with the insight into impermanence, there can be a sense of there being something that appears and disappears. The insight into not-self, in my experience, is the recognition that there isn't anything there. There's not actually a thing there. As things come into being, they're already falling apart. So it's got a kind of a different flavor to it, this insight into not-self. There's nothing actually there. There's no thing there. There is a process happening. It's not that nothing, there's not nothing, but there isn't something. So it's not uncommon for people to express or feel a sense of discomfort around this teaching, to uh, have a, almost a feeling of fear around this idea. It's like, there's so, the, the, fr- listened to from the perspective of self, this teaching doesn't make any sense at all. And listened to from the perspective of self, there can be a sense of, well, what's going to happen to me? And so I find this, this is certainly familiar to me. I've experienced this kind of sense of fear. And that fear usually is not around the experience of not-self, but it's around the idea of the teaching of not-self. And I find it really interesting to kind of contrast the way that we relate to impermanence and the way that we relate to not-self from the intellectual standpoint. Because everybody knows things are impermanent. It doesn't seem to really bother people too much when you're just thinking about it. You know, you go out and talk to people on the street. Are things impermanent? Yeah, sure, everything's things are impermanent. It doesn't disturb people. But we start talking about this concept of not-self, and it feels a little disturbing. And it also just seems completely wrong on top of it. It's just like, this cannot be right. So with impermanence, there's this, you know, this kind of like kind of matter-of-fact casual taking this, yeah, this is, yeah, that, that teaching, I can, no problem, I understand that. And not-self, there's this kind of fear that happens. But when we actually move into the experiential world of these insights, it kind of gets reversed. Because when we start seeing things, particularly when when we start seeing things disappear, when we start seeing things vanish, things start to feel really unstable. 
that insight into the ending of things, the impermanent nature of things, and that they end, everything ending, ending, ending. That experience brings up quite a bit of discomfort. The actual experience of impermanence is not one that you can just say, oh yeah, no problem. The insight into not-self is a relief. When we really see that there's no one here to defend or to protect, there's no problem. So I find it interesting, this kind of way that the idea creates so much distress. And yet the insight is so relieving. (laughs) So it seems to us that there's plenty of evidence for self, that it's, I mean, the feeling itself, when we think about what self is, well, it's just kind of obvious to us that there's a self there. That feeling kind of is the confirmation that self exists. So that feeling seems to be a good part of the evidence for self. It's like, of course self exists, I feel it. And then not only that, the, the view or the belief, the idea in self is so powerful that it filters how we view our world. And so there is actually a lot of evidence for not-self out there. But because we view our experience through this lens of self, It's like we conveniently ignore all of the evidence to the contrary. This is a kind of a very fundamental way our mind deludes us. This is a a capacity of delusion that when we look at experience through a certain lens, that's what we see. What we see then confirms our belief. So some evidence out there, and I pointed to some of it a little while ago, the Buddha actually mentioning consciousness is not self. If consciousness were self, it would be possible to say, let my consciousness be thus. So I'll point to a really concrete example here. When you sit down to meditate and put your attention, say, on your breath or in your flow of changing experience, kind of an intention of choosing to be present with that experience. And the mind wanders. Who did that? Who did that wandering? If you did the wandering, then were you the one that decided to stay put? And even more amazing, actually, even more mind-blowing, is the fact that out of that spaced-out place, 
where it seems like there's not much choice or control, the mind kind of in autopilot, doing its thing, running on habits and patterns, suddenly mindfulness reappears. Who did that? Causes and conditions came together for mindfulness to reappear. It's as simple as that. There's no one there doing this. So exploring this, how do we explore this actually in our practice? I've mostly been talking about the idea, the concept so far. But what what does it mean to actually begin to recognize this in our actual experience? So the teaching that the Buddha gave, the Anatta Lakana Sutta, points us in the direction, I think. There he's suggesting we look at our experience for what we call self and begin to un- investigate it. Does it, is, does it really hold up to that investigation? There's a famous quote, I'm, I know many of you are familiar with this quote by Dogen. To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. So to study this teaching, we study what feels like self. So when we study this, when we get familiar with this feeling, with what we are calling self, we begin to see, and I think it was Rebecca very beautifully said the other morning, that as we study this, as we look at what we're calling self, we may see at some point that it falls apart. And then we get a taste of what this not-self teaching means. Or we may, through studying self, begin to see it arising. See that this, out of kind of causes and conditions, a particular pattern or habit of selfing comes to be. The angry self or the frustrated self comes into being out of these habits and patterns. It wasn't there and there it is. So we see this self coming into being. Or we might start to see as we explore what we are calling self, that's what we call self actually changes quite rapidly from wide to widely different experiences. So I'll go through some of these ways. So first, just some reflection. And, and you might just go through this with me, kind of in your own experience, asking yourself, what is it that you call self. What in your experience is it that you identify as self? Sometimes it has a sense of, includes a sense of solidity, a sense of thingness, a sense of continuity often. A continuity of from past to future, from past to present, where memory plays a big role. That because, essentially, because of memory, because I can remember things, I must be, there must be someone who remembers. 
because there is memory, there must be someone who remembers. That sense of continuity. It might be the sense of the one who's in control, the one who decides, the one who chooses. It might be the sense of being the one who feels or knows. At one point in my practice, I could really clearly see, it was very clear that I wasn't doing the knowing, that I wasn't choosing what to know. Knowing was happening. And yet it felt like I was the one experiencing what was known. That's a, I think that's a pretty common, deeper kind of sense of self, being the one who experiences. So it's often a vague kind of feeling. Actually, when we start to look at it, it's a vague kind of feeling. And it's hard to actually pin it down to actually pin down, what do we mean by self? It's more of a feeling, in a way. But there's something there that feels really solid. Kind of compare it to the way we observe pain. You know, when you first start to meditate and start to observe painful experience, it feels like a solid thing. Some, you know, thing there. A, a block of some kind. And then when we turn our attention into it, we really realize there's no thing that we call pain. It's actually a lively changing process and experience of flux and flow. And you can't really say, well, that's the pain. Because when you, when you find that one point, it vanishes. And then the, the experience moves over just a few inches. There's no one thing that is the pain. It's kind of similar as we start to observe what we call self. It seems solid until we start to look at it. And then it shifts and changes. We can't quite pin it down. This, too, is evidence for not-self. And yet what we seem to do, because that view is so strong, we seem to think, well, I must just not be looking at it right. I must just not be seeing it right. Or if somebody points out a contradiction to us, like the Buddha, well, you know, go through all of these aspects of experience. It's not there, it's not there, it's not there, it's not there. Okay, I can agree it's not there, not th- but it must be someplace else. Because that view is so strong. So the encouragement is to actually turn towards this feeling. What is it? Sometimes this feeling can be really clear. this is a good time to really start to play with this teaching. You know, sometime, actually this seems to happen when there's, when one of our, when some of our beliefs about self are challenged, that seems to be when the feeling of self gets really strong. You know, we're going along, as long as everything is corresponding to our views of how things should be, how I am, how other people should behave with respect to me, as long as things are moving along in line with our views, we don't particularly, that sense of self is more vague. It can be more vague. It's, it's, it's like, well, there's no problem. So there's no sense of that solidity. But as soon as there's something that kind of points out to us that that belief or that view may uh, not be in line with reality, then the feeling of self kind of 
hits us in the face. You know, the feeling of self-righteousness, for example. You know, I'm right, you're wrong. This comes because there's some kind of a rub between our view of how things should be and how things actually are. So this is a good, good time to explore this sense of self. I'll give you an example from my own practice of this kind of an exploration. On one retreat, I was suffering from the I'm a failure pattern quite frequently. I felt like I couldn't meditate. I felt like everybody else could meditate. And I was a failure. It was, I was a bad yogi. And I would, I would notice that, and there was a lot of suffering around that pattern. And at some point on that same retreat, I would notice, and actually it began to become really clear to me in very short time, because I was suffering from this feeling of, I don't know how to practice, I can't be mindful, and I would take a step and I'd feel the sensations of the foot on the ground. Mindfulness. Ah, oh, I'm a good yogi. And then suddenly, oh, I can't, I can't feel anything. I, oh, I'm a bad yogi. And it was like, whoa, wow, this is interesting. <laughs> I'm a good yogi. I'm a bad yogi. This I was in my face. This I am this was in my face. So exploring it, what is it? What is it? What was I feeling? Really what was happening in a lot of, I think, around self was this, these ideas, views, beliefs. This is a large part of where self comes into play. We have views, we have beliefs around how things should be. And from uh, from the perspective of my ideal, I should be a good yogi. When my own experience didn't measure up to how I thought it should be, I was a failure. One thing that really pointed out so clearly to me, because this, in this experience I saw when I felt like I was a good yogi, it didn't feel like there was a problem. That was how it was supposed to be. When I felt like I was a failure, that was where it felt like the problem was. But at some point I began to recognize that the feeling of failure was intimately tied to the idea I had about what being a good yogi was. And that sense of, I'm a good yogi, was a setup. And so actually, for me, in exploring this process of the selfing around this, what I really saw I needed to do was look at that praise, that self-praise that I was doing. I did also need to recognize when I was telling myself I was a failure. It's equally, both sides of it are equally nonsense. But the conditions for the arising of that failure were directly connected to the attachment to that feeling of being a good yogi. And so in this exploration, then this is, again, this is where the rub comes in. 
This is where our views don't meet reality. My idea of being a good yogi was like continuous mindfulness. This doesn't happen very often. <laughs> mind wanders. Every time the mind wanders, oh, I'm a failure. So the rub of our views of self, our view of who I am or I want to be, when that meets reality and there is suffering, this is a great place to explore the sense of self. And this is a pointer for us. Actually, whenever there's suffering, there's some kind of sense of self, some kind of you there. The process by which the self is created, by by which the experience of self is created, that selfing process, the process by which that comes to be is the same process by which suffering comes to be. So you're already doing this. You're already exploring this in your experience. When you're exploring and meeting the experience of unsatisfactoriness, of the dukkha, you're exploring this process of selfing, whether or not it feels that way. You can also notice when this feeling of self arises. Sometimes we get into places where things are pretty quiet. Doesn't feel, there's not much grasping, not much clinging going on. Things feel pretty stable, pretty calm. And then suddenly something happens and there's our self right in our face. On one retreat, I was in a place where things were relatively neutral for quite a good stretch of time. And I was beginning to notice there was subtle reactivity to that neutral experience. Just being in the walking meditation, noticing neutral experience. There'd be this little bit of leaning into the neutral experience, a little bit of expectation. Ooh, maybe something will happen. A little bit of wanting there. And when nothing happened, I'm a failure. Out of nothing. The mind just creating this pattern. Neutral experience, a little bit of wanting, that expectation doesn't get met, and I'm a failure. This is self arising right in the moment. I saw it in that moment, and I actually smiled at it. It's like, look at that. Wow, out of nothing, the mind created a failure. We can also see kind of a rapidly changing sense of self sometimes, you know, just in, um, as we start to feel into what we're calling self, we begin to see that we've got a lot of different selves in there. There's committees in there. All different ages. I was doing some walking meditation out here uh, on one three-month course, and I had some reactivity to some of the questions in the hall. And I was arguing in my mind with the questions in the hall, with the, with the, you know, how things were being discussed and described in the, in the question and answer period. And I was noticing that I was arguing in my mind, and I could feel this sense of, 
I think I, I remember feeling a sense of the 40-year-old analytical, argumentative me. And I was feeling into that, trying to, you know, be with it, understand it. And it felt so sticky. I didn't really see how to, you know, how to tease it apart. It just was so complicated and so me. And I was doing the walking meditation, and this truck drives up. Big, loud brakes squealing, the doors bang open. And instantly, the mind switched from that argumentative 40-year-old to a, it's a truck. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. And I felt like I was two years old. Just like that. And that was, that was quite a startling, that was a, quite a lesson for me of seeing how these senses of self change. So look, what are you taking yourself to be? In your experience, what is it that you think of as self? the last piece I'll explore about this teaching is another teaching of the Buddha that Greg mentioned yesterday morning in the instructions, or he told me he mentioned. Since I wasn't here, I'm taking his word for it. He talked about the teaching to Bahia. And this is a, this is actually a very beautiful teaching. And I'll just say it for you. Again, I think Greg probably said it for you. Bahia came to the Buddha and asked him for the teachings in brief. And the Buddha responded, you should train yourself thus. In the seen is only the seen. In the heard is only the heard. In the sensed is only the sensed. In the cognized is only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. So he started there, and that's the training. That's what we do. We meet our experience. This is where I began the talk, just meeting our direct experience underneath the level of concept. In the scene is only the scene. And the Buddha goes on in this teaching. He says, so this is the practice. The simplicity of just meeting experience is the practice. And then the Buddha goes on to, to state what the results of this practice are. He says, when for you in the seen is only the seen, in the heard is only the heard, in the sensed is only the sensed, in the cognized is only the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there's no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there's no you there, you are neither here, nor yonder, nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So the Buddha points to this as a result of practice. It's an insight. We don't have to believe it even. Just come back to the simplicity of experience 
And the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard. Underneath the level of concept, in the cognized is only the cognized. Recognizing concept as just another construction of the mind as opposed to believing it as a thing. When for you this is the case, there is no you in terms of that. No you there. So we don't need to believe this teaching. We don't even need to think about it. So you can really let this whole talk go out of your minds and just come back to the simplicity of meeting your experience moment to moment. Trust in that. The insights come out of that. So let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.